Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm doing good. I'm going to see my Boise kind of spiritual group tonight, so I'm excited to I've been recovering from knee surgery, so someone's going to pick me up. And I'm just, I woke up today just excited that I get to leave the house today. So that's what's big going on in my life. What about you? Well, how big is your group? Uh, Yeah, on Facebook, it's maybe like 200 people. And kind of the core of it is maybe 20 people. And then maybe 30 to 40 people show up for any given activity. So I mean, it's a, I, I'm very proud. It's very rare that groups like this last more than five years and we're coming up on that mark. And so I'm, I'm still proud of this little group and the friendships that I've formed in it. A group of 200, you have to have some myth to hold that together. Right? <laughs> what are the myths you're using? You know, the myth, the, the story is really trauma bonding. And then after that, there's not enough holding we certainly couldn't get all of us together doing one thing because everybody's scattered now in their journeys and spirituality and, and everything like that. So I just try to do like a sampling of different things um, to explore really. But without that, like we were all previously Mormon trauma bonding connection without that, I don't know if we could have held it together. You know what Mm, I mean? Just as a spiritual exploration group. So I guess the myth is, I guess the story is like the the Mormon story and then deconstructing the story. That's what's yeah. holding this group together. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard to do. Yeah, it's hard to hold more than that because that's really how it started. But we're trying. We're, we're trying to still explore spirituality together. And well, I I'm like it. It really sounds like, a, yeah, it sounds like a, a group that would benefit the folks who participate. And so I'm, I'm glad that you... Uh, play a big part in that, and uh, it seems to be something that's beneficial to those who who yeah, take some was, sort of activity in it. It was pure for pure selfish reasons because yeah. I just I just needed better friends. To be honest, I just needed people. And yeah, you find yeah. your people. So, what about you? What's new with you? Uh, Thrive in St. George is this weekend. My wife and I are giving a talk. Um, she's really nervous. We haven't really finalized the talk at all. And so, you know, me, I'll just wait to the last minute and I'll stand up and we'll say something. But she's like, this is that give her anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, She's like, I'm not you. I'm like, I'm like, babe, babe, babe. I'll like, again, to make you feel more comfortable, like, and and also because I like to talk, you know, I'll I'll probably do most of the talking. And she's got a few things she wants to add, but she doesn't know when she's going to add them. I'm like, we'll work it all out tonight. So Mm, three or four days here before Thrive and, and the two of us will work on our talk tonight. But Otherwise, life is good. Uh, my wife and I go on our first cruise in a couple of weeks and uh, really excited to do that. Um, everything seems to be going really well. And uh, I'll be honest, I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation today that this is something you pointed out. I was going to do an episode on distancing self-talk, which we will briefly mention today. And that was going to be the overarching theme of the episode. And 
And then you messaged me and said, hey, is there any way that it could be tied into this other topic, which we'll get into here in a moment. And uh, I started reading on the topic you sent me and I liked it a whole lot better than, than <laughs> distancing self-talk. So, uh, and I thought there was, I thought every one of these, we're going to talk today, by the way, about the five big personality traits. And every one of these is such a topic of its own that it was really easy to fit some conversation points into each. And uh, I think this is going to be a really dynamic uh, conversation between the two of us. Yeah, we, this was brought up by our guest last time, Kyle Bishop, um, who works in this, in his deconstruction coaching, which I don't do. I haven't, um, I haven't really dived into this. And so when you were talking about, you know, some, some personality things, I was like, Ooh, I wonder if we could explore this, this new personality test that I'd really not gone into before and kind of bring in some of these psychological concepts that you were talking about. And yeah, I'm really excited because this is a new, um, whenever, you know, you and I dive into some new personality test or psychological concepts, you know, we learn about ourselves. I, I'm learning about, you know, words for myself and also my spouse. And um, so I just, I've really loved this week, just learning something new. Yeah. So should we jump into it? Yeah, let's do it. So we should start off with, and I'll put this up on the screen. Let me, uh, me get rid of that and we'll throw this up there. This was just our image for the show for the week, but it, it lists these five. So we can kind of just talk about them at a surface level to begin with. There's obviously a ton of personality traits that are out there. Um, but for whatever reason, and I'd love for you to give a little bit of the background here, because I, I see that in the notes. Um, talk for a moment about why these five or what was trying to be accomplished. Yeah, so this started, this this study kind of started in 1945, so it's relatively new research, and it started with 18,000 words that describe personality traits, so like brave, strong, grit, shy, right, and then a lot of them like kind of blended together, like maybe bravery and strength you know, you could start to combine some of these. And then, so they have the words, and then they also have 4,500 observable behavior markers, like um, how you act at a party or something like that. And so they narrowed down these observable behavior markers so that you could test this with these 18,000 words that they started with that describe personality, and they just whittled it down. I think in the 60s, it got to about 20, 22 personality types, and they could, through these studies, whittle it down more and more and more until you kind of get, these are almost like elements of personality where like you can't break it down anymore. And so these are the five um, personality types or yeah five personality traits and so what is cool with this is that if you're really high in one of these it doesn't necessarily mean anything else for anything else because these are five that are really like they're so focal that um it's not going to affect kind of the other five very much because these are kind of their own poles of personality traits. And so it was interesting. I was going to take the test. I didn't, I don't think you did either. Did mm -hmm. you take the? Yeah. I was really just kind of reviewing and just kind of self-reflecting, but they say that if you do take a test, it will be more accurate if someone else takes that test for you because, um, 
one, we're just kind of really bad at at accurately judging ourselves. But then also like there's this psychological concept where if I'm late, it's because of some external force, right? Like the traffic and this person was an idiot and I got a phone call. But if you're late, it's because you're a late person and you're disrespecting my time, right? It's something about you. But we don't do that with ourselves and everybody does this. And so if you take the test, it actually might be more accurate for your spouse or someone close to you to take the test for you. Mm. But anyway, that was, those were just some things that I found when I was looking into it. But basically, yeah, these are the five big personality traits that we can't combine these anymore. We can't whittle them down anymore um, than these five. And they said the easiest way to remember these is to think of the word ocean. Uh, so O-C-E-A-N, O standing for openness, C standing for conscientiousness, E standing for extroversion, so kind of the balance between being an introvert and extrovert, uh, the A standing for agreeableness, and the N standing for neuroticism. And each of these is so interesting. And I guess we'll start off, we'll just start with the first one, which is openness. Um, in one of the sites that I read up on this, it said openness, also referred to as openness to experience, emphasizes imagination and insight the most out of all five personality traits. People who are high in openness tend to have a broad range of interest. They are curious about the world and other people and are eager to learn new things and enjoy new experiences. People who are high in this personality trait also tend to be more adventurous and creative. Conversely, people low in this personality trait are often much more traditional and may struggle with abstract thinking. Any thoughts there from you? Yeah, so a couple things, um, two things here. So I, I was looking at some research that shows compatibility, so big five compatibility. And so for some of these, you're going to want kind of your opposite or some balance in your relationship. But for this one, it was best if your partner scores relatively close to you in trait openness, which I thought was super interesting. So you want someone who's not, you know, doesn't have to be exactly the same, but if you are super, super open and you have someone who is super, super not, that's going to be a really difficult relationship. And it reminds me of some Reddit rabbit holes that I've gone through where um, people have divorced over things like Trump or COVID. And it's specifically because I think one person is maybe more willing to have that openness piece and then the other wasn't and it caused issues in the relationship. But uh, the subtraits of openness were, yeah, imagination, artistic, emotional, adventurous, intellect, and also liberalism. And then the reverse of that, yeah, is I have difficulty understanding abstract ideas. I'm not interested in abstract ideas. I don't have a good imagination. And then just really shut down. And the other hypothesis that I had is I had a hypothesis that if you experience trauma, you would maybe be more close to experience. That was my hypothesis, that maybe having trauma like would really shut you down. And so I was digging into the research and my hypothesis was totally wrong. If you have a traumatic event or you have something that just really rocks your world and breaks you open, you're actually more likely to have some openness because you realize that you were wrong about things. And then you go into life more realizing like, Oh, like the world wasn't exactly what I thought it was, which can, which happens with, with trauma. Yeah. And I would have actually yeah, guessed, ahead. I would have actually guessed that 
Um, because I would I would have thought, as you're pointing to kind of on the back half of, of your thoughts, that when someone has a, a traumatic experience, I think you're forced to realize the world doesn't work the way you thought it did. And then, and then hence, what else doesn't work the way you think it does? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was, that was one of them. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So other thoughts, you know, obviously for the most part, these are worded on the positive side of things, right? Being agreeable, even though in some situations, agreeable is a negative. Agreeable sounds like a positive trait. Openness sounds like a positive trait. Conscientious extroversion. Neuroticism being kind of the one that sounds like a negative trait, but the opposite, obviously, of openness is being closed, closed off. And um, I was thinking about that when we're closed off, meaning that we're emotionally tied to our perspective. Uh, we lack the capacity to hold another's hurt, another's perspective. We're closed off to information that would help us better align with reality. So when you're closed, if you're not on the high side of open, but you're on the on the low side of open, you're more closed. You're, you're, you're going to tend to be sure that you're right, whether you are or not. You're going to tend to not really be open to new information. You're not going to be open to other people's perspectives. You kind of like your world the way it is, and you don't really want to challenge that. And I think generally speaking, when it comes to the one of openness, because I think there is positive negatives to most of these, I think for the most part, I think openness is better than being closed. And I don't think that works so true necessarily with all of these, but to note that I think with the majority of them, it does seem to have one side that's much healthier than the other. Yeah. So how I would say that is yes, like both sides have pros and cons, but mm -hmm. one side may lean towards better mental health. Yeah. So yes, like openness uh, being able to take in new ideas that might lead to better mental health and really having to, um, you know, be so conventional and traditional that this has to be the world. And then you're kind of trying to force the world into the worldview that you have. And that's just going to create a lot of dissonance, a lot of uh, difficult relationships, kids that don't talk to you. I mean, there's problems with that. And then the con, the con for openness or the shadow side that I was picking up from a different research um, paper was that the the shadow side of openness is that you are more likely to overestimate what you know. So for example, if you are conventional and traditional and you have a particular worldview, you've probably really researched that worldview and it all fits under that worldview. If you have a lot of openness, you may have like glanced over a topic and you think, oh yeah, I, I saw a podcast on that. I totally know what that's about. And so some that openness can make you feel like you know more than you know, not because um, it's like your particular niche, but because, oh, if you like listen to, if you saw an article on it, you'll think, oh yeah, I totally understand this concept when really you've never done a deep dive on that concept and you probably don't know much about it. Yeah. For instance, if you tend to buy into conspiracy theories all the time, you probably have a high level of openness to you and maybe some sort of balance back to the closed um, probably would be more in touch with what is real. Not that, not that every conspiracy, again, I don't want to get on the, a, a tangent, but not that every conspiracy theory is wrong, but if you believe a bunch of them and you're constantly looking for those and tend to believe in them, there's probably a, a little too much openness. 
Yeah, and that actually goes with some research that I found with UFOs and aliens. If you're higher on the openness scale, you're actually more open to those. Yeah. Whether or not they're true, yeah. you're just your personality is more open to the idea of maybe, you know, maybe. So that yeah, yeah that goes in line with with what I found, but it's interesting. So would you say that so would you say that with you and your wife? I'm curious. When you were first married, do you feel like you were close on this kind of openness scale? And then after, you know, both transitioning still close, or do you feel like you have some separation between you and your wife on this one? Yeah, I would say when we first got married, she would have been way more open than me. I was very closed. Mm. And I would say on this side of things, we both have become more open than we were, but I think I may have leapfrogged her. Hmm. Um, maybe, but she came home the other day and she had a customer who was spouting off a bunch of conspiracy stuff. And there was one or two things out of the 27 things this guy said, where my wife is like, maybe like, maybe like, maybe that's true. So we came home and we had a fun conversation going down the YouTube rabbit hole. Hmm. So maybe we're close, but I yeah. think we either got closer or I moved ahead of her on that, on this side of life. Um, both of us were definitely more closed in the past than we are today. I always mm. say this phrase, I know what it's not, meaning I know mm. it's not the system I came from. I know it's not Scientology. The things I've investigated and read up on and I've come to a rational conclusion and the evidence is overwhelming for me, I have closed myself off to. But for most of the world that I don't have strong evidence, I tend to leave the door open for anything's possible. Yeah, I saw this great little, I think it was a TikTok actually, where someone said, what's, you know, 200,000 times 6,432? And you say, I don't know. And then the person says, well, the answer's two. And it's like, well, I know it's not that. And yeah. they'll say, well, what's the answer? And it's like, I don't know the answer, but I know it's not two. Right. <laughs> you know? And the person who says it's two is like, well, I have an answer. So I'm, you know, I can, I've trumped you here. And it's like, not really. <laughs> Yeah, and it's at it's least like that as big. all the time. Yeah. It's at least as big with the front number being the bigger number and yeah. at least as many digits as both numbers together. And I right? thought that was such a great <laughs> that was such a great illustration of like having the answer does not mean that like does not mean anything, you know, right. because you're just really likely to be wrong. So anyway. I know what it's not. I don't know what it is. And I think that's part of the ingredient of being a mystic, right? Is who knows? Like there's mystery out there. Yeah. It could be a lot of things. I know it's not these 32 things, Yeah. but there's a hundred other things it could be. Yeah. Uh-huh. Totally. Um, the other thing I thought of too, is that openness, I think we tend to be able to step outside of ourselves and see a little bit more from third person point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think this is deeply helpful. I think often when we're in a conversation with a person in which the conversation is emotional, which oftentimes are the people we love, right? Our spouse, our friends, our siblings, our children. And when we're in a conversation that is a little bit emotionally heightened, I think it's deeply advantageous um, to be able to see from a third person point of view, because then you can weigh the merit of what your point of view is and the merit of what the other person's point of view is and be able to negotiate or compromise better solutions for everyone based on what is healthy for everyone. And often I think closed is like, I know I'm right. I know I've got the right way. And so I think in, in connection with other human beings where relationships deeply matter, 
I think being open is deeply more beneficial as you're working out kind of hard topics. And this is where I wanted to insert the distancing self-talk. And I don't even want to get into deep detail because I honestly, this topic was so interesting and I went off in so many directions. I didn't spend much time at all going back and reviewing the distancing self-talk, but this is what I came up with. I just got done reading the book Chatter. Um, I, I can't remember what the name of the author was, but he goes into great detail about how much mind chatter we have. And he uses this really cool story. He talks about Rick Ankiel, who is a, uh, a pitcher with the Anaheim angels, I believe throws a 95 mile an hour fastball. He's excellent in college. He is excellent in the minor leagues of the pros. He gets to the major leagues and he is exceptional. He is one of the best pitchers in the league. They get to the playoffs and suddenly he just loses his control. He's throwing wild pitch after wild pitch. And it's like six or seven wild pitches in a, in a row. So the, the manager pulls him out of the game. Next time his arms fresh, they, uh, you know, four or five games later, they put him back in and the same thing happens from the beginning of the game. He's, he's just wild. He can't keep it under control. And looking back, he acknowledges what happened was the moment he started throwing wild pitches in this big game, he started to have really serious intrusive thoughts and mind chatter going on where he was doubting himself. You know, here's this guy who's been just an amazing pitcher until this very moment. And he's having all this self-doubt going on and all this mind chatter about maybe he's lost it. He's not any good. And they have this phenomenon in professional sports called the yips where Chuck Knobloch was a great second baseman. And suddenly one day he can't make the throw from second base to first because he's got so much stuff going on in his mind. There was also a long snapper in the NFL for the Cleveland Browns named Ryan Pontebron who made pro bowls. He was really good. All he had to do is snap the ball from where he was at to the holder or the punter so that the kick could happen, and suddenly he couldn't snap it, like overnight. And Rick ended up stepping away from sports, retiring. Rick Ankale, the pitcher, went and saw a psychologist and worked on uh, getting rid of his mind chatter so that he could come back. And he actually makes it back to the major leagues as a right fielder with a strong arm, and he hits like 27 home runs one year, ends up becoming a decent hitter. And one of the topics they talked, and again, I'm off on a tangent, but one of the topics no, they talked about in this I book, this story. Yeah. good, good. One of the topics they talked about in the book was ways in which you can reduce um, your mind chatter. And I want to tie it into openness because our ability to be open is to see all perspectives with a sort of fairness to them, that we don't give more merit to ours, our perspective than somebody else's. And what the author said and researched deeply back this up is that whenever we are communicating about um, things that we're not doing right internally, so it's not just about openness with other people, it's also about being open about your own strengths and weaknesses. As you're having conversations with others or yourself about the challenges that are ahead, the things that need to get done, the flaws that keep you from being your best self, they said, if you talk in the third person, which I always thought was weird. I always thought it was an, like an arrogant thing to do. Like, listen, Britt, Bill Real is going to tell you what he thinks, you know? Like anytime you talk in the third person, it seems like that's an arrogant way to do things. And if you go back to sports interviews, you'll notice folks like LeBron James do this a lot. Mm. Um, but they actually showed the science. And by the way, LeBron is following the science. There was a connection there. Uh, when you talk in the third person, you see yourself more objectively Mm -hmm. And you see your interactions with others more objectively that you're actually more productive at getting it to the root of issues and um, figuring out better ways to move forward. And 
when I read this or listened to it actually on Audible, uh, my wife and I were doing kind of our walk around uh, the gym. Uh, there's like a, a walking path in the upstairs of the gym. We're walking around and we were talking about this book and it just clicked. I didn't know this because of science or anything, but intuitively, whenever we're in a serious argument, I will start to talk in third person because I feel like it makes the conversation more balanced. And I seem to be able to see things without my emotion being tethered to my perspective. And so I highly suggest, and there's tons of websites, we'll put them in the show notes, but that distancing self-talk is one way to be more open with yourself and with others around you. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. So, uh, so my husband is lower on openness than I am. And one of the things that really stood out to me is that the deep reason why he's lower in openness is that is this, is this phrase that came up in the research. I have difficulty understanding abstract ideas. I'm not interested in abstract ideas and I don't have a good imagination. So for him, he doesn't read books. Like if he, when I read Harry Potter, like I'm there, like I'm in, like my mind has created this world and I'm in it. Right. And I'm fascinated. If he reads a book, like there's nothing going on there. Like nothing's, nothing's being, you know, shown on the screen of his brain. He just, he doesn't have a great um, imagination, especially with abstract ideas. And so I don't, so I don't think that, um, openness comes or a lack of openness is just, oh, I'm just so stubborn of a person. I think it's more about, yeah, does your brain have that ability? Like you said, Bill, does your brain have that ability to say, I'm going to kind of abstract a little bit. I'm going to look at this from a different point of view. I'm going to use my imagination and be above this conversation and kind of explain what's going on with these two people. And I'm going to talk in the third person, or I'm going to jump out of my usual thought process and consider this other point of view and play it out in my mind. All of that requires imagination and abstraction. And so if you're not, if your brain is not naturally good at that, then it's just something to know about yourself. And so you say, okay, I have a brain that struggles a little bit with these abstractions. Um, so I can learn that from others, or I can listen to people who are good with diagrams and can show different things going on because I don't naturally do that in my own mind. And so it's not something that like, oh, you're stubborn and you're going to be stubborn for the rest of your life. It's like your brain does not have a great imagination with some of these tools. And so you'll have to find ways to be able to help yourself be more open, even though your brain doesn't maybe naturally make that jump that you were talking about. And just to add to this, because you're you brought it up uh, with your husband, there are actually there's actually a segment of the population, a small segment. I don't know what it is, five percent or something, but there's a small segment of the population who actually don't have the ability to close their eyes and picture anything. Mm. So my wife and my youngest child are both both have this. Really, where if you tell my wife to close her eyes and yeah. to picture a tree. You and I would close our eyes and go, I can see the green. I got it. Yeah, I, I got it. Trunk. You know, can't. Yeah. Can't. It doesn't matter how hard they try. They cannot picture something. And so there may even be, again, I'm not suggesting this. I'm only opening up the door. There may even be a connection between one's actual genetic ability to do this. And it yeah. may not be something that they can exactly fix. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I thought that was kind of cool. 
Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, my husband can definitely visualize things when he closes his eyes, but he doesn't have like you and I, if we were to like put a microphone to our chatter, it's very wordy. I would guess, I would guess that like in your brain, it's very chatty, lots of words. And my husband is like less wordy, like his internal chatter is just kind of feelings and he'll just kind of think about something on purpose but the blah 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 going on he doesn't have that it's it's more images and other and 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 feelings and maybe a goal or something but but it's not the chatter and i was like you just walk around all day without like blah 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 in your head and he's like yeah i don't, I don't experience that at all so yeah it's it's really interesting to realize that the landscape of your brain is really kind of unique to you and the the genetic uh, label for this inability is called aphantasia. I'm going to put it here in the mm. comments so folks can uh, can Super go look up on it. But yeah, some po folks have the inability to form mental images of objects that are not present. And then some people have the opposite where like, like stuff starts getting mixed. So they'll like, I think Lady Gaga is one of these where she sees music like like mm. you would if you were on psychedelics. I, I have, really. I have before too. Yeah, yeah. I was just <laughs> without the psychedelics, though, when yeah. she closes her eyes and hears music, she sees it because music those, has those, color. It those has, have like yeah. amped up in her brain naturally. Yeah, yeah. So which may also like explain some of the artistic. Yeah, so you can have like the opposite end of that spectrum, which is I'm so visual that like it's mixed in with everything else. People will even, there's like this part of Ratatouille where he's like trying to explain to his brother how the cheese and the fruit are mixing together. And they actually reached out to someone who experiences this where when they eat food, they get visuals and they they had that person help them with the visuals mm. of that movie, of that scene. And so, yeah, you can have like either side of that spectrum and everywhere in between. Mm, I like it a lot. Super interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the next one here, anything else on? Um, no, no, let's on openness? Yeah, keep rocking. All right. So B, the second one here is uh, conscientiousness. And it, the, the website I read, again, I read a bunch of them, but the one that stuck out the most, it said, among each of the personality traits, conscientiousness is one defined by high levels of thoughtfulness, good impulse control, goal-directed behaviors, Highly conscientious people tend to be organized and mindful of details. They plan ahead, think about how their behavior affects others, and are mindful of deadlines. Someone scoring lower on this primary personality trait is less structured and less organized. They may procrastinate to get things done, sometimes missing deadlines completely. Any so thoughts you are you lower. On? You are lower in conscientiousness, correct? Like. Cause you're just going to walk into this presentation. Just. Yeah. 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 I'll <laughs> just wing it. I'll write down five words on a piece of paper and get, I'll yeah. talk for a half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm less conscientious of my wife in this situation for sure. Mm. Oh, and by the way, I did want to mention that like, uh, so the heredity, hereditability, is that the word mm -hmm. um, of, of these traits is so the, the biggest one is openness. So it said 50% of you, or sorry, 57% of your ability to be open is determined by your genetics, which I thought was interesting. And then everything else is like between 40 and 50%. 
And so there's some genetics there, but then there's also just, just your lifestyle and the rest of your personality. Isn't 50% so like, kind of a crapshoot? Like, let's roll I the mean, dice. Yeah, 50, I mean, 50, that, you know? yeah. So openness was the most, and then the rest are, are, are not as much. So for me, like not as conscientious in various parts of my life, but uh, I have a part of my identity that is I'm a good student. Like that's part of my identity. It was part of my identity growing up in college. I would never like get a B on a test. Like that's just outside my identity. And so um, everything else in my life, I would just say like, not really, but this part of my identity, like the school part of my identity is very conscientious. So I don't know where that makes it for me, but because mm. it does mix in with your identity, which is how you can change these things. So if you start telling yourself, I'm the kind of person who always cleans up after dinner, then you can actually start to change this. Like you, you have enough room in those genetics to change these things. Um, but you have to make it kind of part of your identity. So I have some things like being a good student and being a conscientious student is part of my identity. But the other thing is like not so much. You hit on something really important. And I'll, I'll talk about this as we get to the end where we talk about neuroticism. But these are changeable. And the research, I listened to two podcasts on this topic. And one of them was stating the the uh, the expert. And again, I can't remember if she was a clinical psychologist or what, but um her, she shared, like, if you are closed to not being able to change these, then you can't. But if you are willing to put in the work and like you said, tell yourself a new story, start creating new habits, then, then you can end up uh, coming up with that. And so the other thing I was thinking about conscientiousness, I was thinking about how conscientiousness affects, like how considerate we are of others. And it got me thinking about uh, the idea of etiquette and manners. And so this idea that, excuse me, sorry about that, please and thank you, that these are about being aware that we as humans are constantly bumping into each other, sometimes accidentally, such as a car accident, or we're standing in the way when someone's walking, trying to get past us. Sometimes we, um, sometimes we bump into each other, uh, accident, I'm sorry, uh, accidentally, which I mentioned, sometimes to relieve our own discomfort, such as uh, burping or farting, for instance, or pulling out in front of somebody because I'm in a hurry. Sometimes we agree to take on discomfort so that others may avoid it, such as opening a door for someone or holding an elevator. And I was thinking about, because I'm trying to be a conscientious person out in public in my interactions with people. And when I recognize that every interaction comes with the possibility of bumping into each other. So when I open a door for someone, number one, I'm expending energy so that someone else doesn't have to. I'm touching the door handle and I've got germs on my hand. Someone else doesn't have to. And so anytime there is an exchange of uh, taking some level of discomfort or trauma accidentally um, or intentionally, there is this expectation in our society that we then say, uh, excuse me, sorry about that, please and thank you. And, and it helps me when I think of it that way, when I recognize any time someone is unintentionally or intentionally taking on additional discomfort or trauma so that I can avoid it, 
the etiquette in the situation involves me saying something. And the whole purpose in saying something is so that both people can move forward, right? Like somebody has taken a hit and now they need some sort of, and I don't want to say apology because some of these aren't really apologies. Um, you know, please and thank you, for instance, isn't an apology, but it's the language that we use in our social structures so that when there is one side taking on discomfort or trauma and the other one gets to avoid it, it's the way that we allow both parties to go back to neutral and to move on. Mm. And it's been very helpful to me when I think of it that way, I'm much more prone to be aware of it and to be polite and conscientious and to have good etiquette. Um, and, and it also goes maybe another step further. Religion creates all these rules about morality, right? Like sex, for instance. And the whole reason is because as a, as a tribe of people, we determined what sorts of behaviors are risky for the cohesive structure of the tribe. So for instance, for me to cough around other people has a risk. Hence, if I cough, I cover my mouth. That's the agreement. If I don't cover my mouth and I accidentally cough out without doing so or intentionally don't cover it, I now owe an apology to everyone around. Oh, sorry about that, right? Because you're putting the tribe at risk by doing that. And if you think about every bad behavior in a religious system, they are all behaviors that, uh, and again, I'm just going to say all of them because, for instance, coffee and Mormonism has its own like, <laughs> own like reasons for why it's there. But the behaviors that we consider to be like egregious sin, they tend to be the behaviors that put people at risk. And the religion comes up with rules for which you are clean. So for instance, the, the, the Bible is, has all this stuff about the left hand. And it really goes back to this idea that the left hand was used to do all the dirty work, such as wiping your rear end after you, after you go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and so the right hand is clean and we put these religious rules on it. And we say, God said this, and it seems so abstract, like, oh my goodness, I make a, a sacred covenant with my right hand because the left hand is dirty. But then if we just go back one layer kind of lower than that, and we sense like, oh, the left hand in just a, re uh, um, in kind of a, a reality sense of what's going on, the left hand is dirtier than the right hand for yeah. most people, right? That yeah, and that reminds me of, so Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro were podcasting and Joe Rogan was talking about, yeah, it makes total sense to me why there would be a prohibition on pork because at the time, like it's a really, there was, you know, a, a disease when you eat pork that is just super dangerous to the tribe. And Ben Shapiro just did not like that at all. He no. just said something like, oh, I don't I don't like any naturalistic explanations of religion because he's a practicing Jew. And he right. didn't like any of that. But to Joe Rogan, it made total sense. Like, yeah, the religion is going to intake some of these things that are going to that are going to help the tribe. And it goes back to some of our more kind of philosophical conversations that you and I have had where you know, if, if we if we talk about religion as if it's a virus, it's a virus that breeds a lot of babies, does a lot of um, behavior modification for the benefit of the tribe. And that's why it's a successful virus on humans. If we're yeah. just thinking about ideas as viruses. It's the reason why sex is so regulated by religious systems. Because if we make space for everyone to have sex with everyone, what happens is the social structures break down because we humans can't help but feel things and we're not able to handle that weight of, 
of our partner being with other partners, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And and then obviously uh, a young person having a child um, out of wedlock, like we we discourage premarital sex and we say it's because there's a bearded man in the sky and he doesn't like what's going on. But the reality is that it's a breakdown of the ability to have, if we're going to have kids raising Get kids. resources to that kid. Yeah. yeah. And, and so all of these rules are for a reason. They do serve a real purpose. If you take religion and just set it off to the side and don't let its explanation of these things uh, take the lead, you can sense that any behavior in society that is destructive to the societal structure is going to have rules around it. And the very lowest kind of level of those are just the small little things of us bumping into each other. And hence why we've created this sense of etiquette and how we make amends with people as they take on discomfort or trauma uh, unnecessarily uh, at the lowest levels. Anyway, that was one thought I had. Anything else from you on this one? Yeah, I I, I do think it's religion. I do, I do think it's interesting that religion uh, does encourage conscientiousness. So, so if your kid was Sometimes. raised in, in a religion, yeah, I do think for children. So I, I've seen studies where um, it doesn't, you know, if you take out the actual doctrine that's going on, and the trauma caused by that doctrine, just the idea of having a kid sit in church with other adults and get behavior modifications. This is how we fold our arms. This is how we speak in front of each other. This is how we sit. And you get a bunch of people really doing behavior modifications on children. Um, those children will have less impulsivity because it's really been trained that, hey, when we're all together, you have to be mindful of others. You have to be polite. This is how we do things, right? And so there is a shadow side to that, right, which is conformity. And you're going to have to, as an adult, if you're breaking away from that religion, you're going to have to undo all of that conditioning. But there may be some impulsivity that that religion is helping to kind of encourage out of kids by having not just the parents, but other adults help lower impulsivity mm. so that the adults can or so that the kids can grow up to be sociable and learn to have appropriate relationships with people so there's some there's some pros and cons there and you just have to kind of know where you are and know the pros of being more conscientious and less conscientious and you know how you may need to balance it out or how it's affecting your relationship this is all just kind of really about awareness and then as far as compatibility um it is this one it is best if just like the last one it is better if your partner scores relatively close to you um because you'll have an easier time determining how to run a household and how all of the jobs and duties will be allocated so if you're both lower on um conscientiousness then it won't bother you so much to just do chores once every other week and just do a big chore day and just the rest of the time it's just a pigsty like that won't does would that bother you (laughs) Um, that would bother bother me i think actually i I probably have again we're not I don't want the audience to get the wrong idea thinking it's the extreme, but we are folks who kind of go like, all right, we're going to do laundry on a regular basis, but we're going to fold it when it, when the mountain of laundry gets too big, Mm. you know, like we'll just sit down and and just pound it out over two hours rather than a half hour every day or something, you know? Yeah. So if you're the person who doesn't mind the mountain and then if you marry someone who's super conscientious, who needs that put away every day, you're going to have a lot of marital fighting. So you want to be similar. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
the the other thing I was thinking about too, I was saying at the lowest level, this idea of etiquette and manners. At the highest level, you see this play out when like somebody murders somebody else, and in the courtroom, the family like forgives, right? Like there's this idea of like they don't want this tragedy to continue to eat up different people's lives. And they're trying to make some sort, and you hear these people talk about it. It's really this altruistic sort of motive where they really want to make it possible for all sides to be able to move on and move forward. And generally when we hear of these things happening, we're astounded because I'm in my head going like, no way am I going to forgive you for having, you know, raped my kid and murdered them um, or, you know, killed my, my sister in a drunk driving accident. And yet you see these folks who in these really crucial moments seem to have this healthy grounding inside of them where they're like, I just don't want this horrific thing to keep affecting more and more mm -hmm. lives. So I'm just going to draw a line here. I'm going to make peace with it. I'm going to forgive and we're going to move on. Yeah. So that would be like, yeah, there's high levels of thoughtfulness there. There's impulse control, meaning I know that I'm angry. I'm still going to choose what I think is the best. Goal-directed behaviors. I want to be the kind of person who can forgive even in terrible situations, right? And so, yeah, conscientiousness, some of that is like attention to detail. But, yeah, some of that is what you're talking about, which is the ability to just say, I'm feeling this, but, you know, I have a goal to be this kind of person. Or after thinking about it, I, I want to act in this way. And then statistically, so they're the safest drivers, but they also buy the most insurance, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that was a good, likely, I heard that. They're least likely to get in a car accident, but most likely to be like fully insured if they yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, less likely to use drugs and alcohol, more likely to feel guilt and more likely to conform, which again, these are just like pros and cons. Um, I think overall, it's probably good to be conscientious and to have good impulse control and be thoughtful. Uh, but when you get to the level where you're just feeling so guilty, if you do something out of conformity, then obviously that can be something that you'd have to struggle with and work with a therapist with to be able to balance that out. Yeah. And just one more little note, we'll move on to the next one, which is, uh, I've said this in a podcast before and spoke at length about it. So I'll just mention it. But the idea of taking a tie, when you're in a disagreement with another human being, and you both are passionately holding your ground and you're both being like, I sincerely hold this ground. You're not going to talk me out of it. It often is either a misunderstanding. One person heard something wrong or understood something wrong, or the other person said something wrong, but generally both people believe they're in the right. And it's not really a matter of right and wrong or good and bad. It's really just a difference of what you value it's really just a difference of what you what you come to the the experience as. So, for instance, as we're talking about these five personality traits, if somebody is over here on the open side and somebody over here is on the agreeable side and somebody over here is introverted and that person's conscientious or less or this one's got neuroticism, they're all going to come to situations so different and their life experience impacts that. That so, at least on some level, I think a part of conscientiousness is an awareness that everybody's showing up to the moment, honestly, like this is their, this is the best they could come to this moment. Again, no free will, right? Like they're coming to this moment the best they could. And conscientiousness to some degree, I think would honor that maybe there isn't always right or wrong, but these are two different people who value different things. And what this experience is, is different for both of them. 
And I think in those moments, and you know those moments because they're the moments you keep coming back to, right? Like you and your husband have certain disagreements that you continually revisit and he still does it the way he does it. You still do it the way you do it. And you're both pissed at each other every once in a while about it. And in that moment, maybe the best we can do is just take the tie. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe that would be helpful. And, and then anything else, anything else here before we move on to the next one? No, yeah, let's go to extroversion. So the website said extroversion is a personality trait characterized by excitability, social ability, talkativeness, assertiveness, and high amounts of emotional expressiveness. People high in extroversion are outgoing and tend to gain energy in social situations. Being around others helps them feel energized and excited. People who are low in this personality trait or introverted tend to be more reserved. They have less energy to expend in social settings and social events can feel draining. Introverts often require a period of solitude and quiet in order to recharge. And I wrote a couple of questions here down. There are actually two sets of questions and each contains several. Recognizing how an introvert in a family, I think maybe it was us that talked about this recently, or I was in a conversation with somebody where they were talking about what it would be like to be a introvert in an extrovert yeah. family or an extrovert in an introvert family. But recognizing how an extrovert in a family, I'm sorry, an introvert in a family of extroverts might seem to them. Why are you so disconnecting? Why don't you like us? Why are you annoyed? Why don't you have fun with us, right? Recognizing how an extrovert in a family of introverts might seem to them. You are so overwhelming. You need to slow down. You're exhausting me. I need to take a break, a nap, a breather. Um, and, And notice how we in these situations perceive them again as good and bad. And the reality is it's just two different human beings or two different groups of human beings in the same space trying to get along, but unintentionally bumping into each other. I just want to note being more, um, being more open. And I use that kind of as a play on words from the first one, being more open helps us notice these differences and honor them before they annoy us or overwhelm us when we're in social spaces with people who just human differently than we do. Mm. Any thoughts there? Yeah. So some words that I, that I wrote down because Sometimes, so my parents, for example, my dad's introverted and my mom is extroverted, but my mom is a socially awkward extrovert and my dad, he's a professor, so he worked on it. So he's naturally introverted, but much more social, much more, you know, if he's at a party, it's much more maybe socially appropriate. And so it's not, it's not necessarily that, or for me, like I'm very introverted but like we said, where you can shift these things if you practice going out and I'm on podcasts and I practice talking and I can do this and I can even get to the point where people will be surprised at how naturally introverted I am. Um, and so it's not just that you have to be social or like the life of the party in order to be an extrovert. Some other terms are, you know, spunky, um, cheerful, adventurous Uh, They drink and party more on average. They're more prone to infidelity. They're more charismatic. They're more outgoing. They actually walk faster than introverts. They're just, they're gone, which is so interesting because um, I took my mom's extroverted and whenever we're walking somewhere, I'm literally like walking behind her and I'm like, mom, like slow down. Um, (laughs) But if the more, 
the extroversion you there are there is an association with an increased level of happiness because you're more likely to go out and have relationships with people and you're also more likely to spend money on experience because you you want you want the experience you're dying you want to travel you want to eat the thing you want to try the thing you want to go to the escape room with friends and so there There's is sevens an on the enneagram yeah there, there is an association to happiness because by being extroverted you're going out and doing things with people which is really good for your mental health um you're also the the shadow side of this is if you're extroverted you're more likely to be overweight you can be controlling and you can struggle with time management which i thought was really interesting mm. And then as far as compatibility, some variance is useful. So if you are both the life of the party, that can become very competitive. Or if you're both like extreme introvert introverts, then you'll just kind of like die on the couch together. And that might not be healthy for either of you. So actually, this is one where you actually want a little bit of difference because you want the introvert to be able to say like, I know you want to go to Greece today, but like maybe we can plan this, you know, or maybe, you know, and you want the extrovert to kind of pull the introvert out. And I know for you guys, you're more intro you're you're more extroverted than Amanda is. Wrong. I can tell that. No? Wrong. Am no. I wrong? So <gasps> let me see. Um I when I go to a party, I will sit in the background on a couch and just people watch because I mm. think it looks like a lot of work and there's a lot of risk to be in any social group trying to maintain or improve your how you're perceived does that make sense mm -hmm. and um i don't tend to be out front my wife is very much out front uh mm, she'll talk to everybody so she's friends with everyone what i think throws people off is that this what we're doing right now yes yeah. people would perceive me being an extrovert right here yeah me too but, but i'm not i'm sitting here with just Brittany hartley having a one-on-one uh, -on -one yeah. conversation all yeah. the times i am successful at looking like an extrovert Mm -hmm. is when I'm in complete control, such as I'm standing at a stage talking yeah. and nobody gets to bother how I do it. Um, or I'm having a one-on-one -on -one conversation that looks like a group yeah. activity, but it's really just a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yeah, me too, me too, man. So what fooled me on this one is that the first time that I met your wife was at a Sunstone uh, yeah. a conference. And so uh, you were kind of on stage doing all of the things. And I don't think that Amanda was out yet or she was she was not as in this world as you were and so she just really hung back because this was just not really her space very yet. apprehensive yes and so i thought oh she's just you know bill's just more extroverted and she's mm -hmm. more introverted like that's what i thought totally you wrong. should you should come hang out again <laughs> i will i will i would love to but yeah i so yeah it, it is interesting because you can if you if you become if like you and me where we're talking a lot and we're talking online, you can become more comfortable with your voice. You can mm -hmm. seem like you're really social, but I I definitely am not. I'm not the person at the party. I'm not that girl. That's you know I I'm I need a, I need long quiet times. To what do you think Chris Bloxham is? Oh, he's the yeah he's the party. <laughs> he's the I knew the second sure. I knew the second that I met him. Yeah. Um, I enjoy learning things and I enjoy sharing what I'm learning. So I think that partly plays into looking like an extrovert as well. Um, I get exhausted. If my wife and I go to a party, I generally will want to leave the party 
on the oh, earlier side of it. That's so interesting. Because I'm I'm worn out. I really am. I, mm-hmm. I and I feel like I'm not exactly an introvert. I'm probably somewhere closer to the middle. Because a couple times a week, I have to get out. I got to do something crazy. I yeah. got to meet a new and person. And extroverts need to recharge too. Like they're yeah. not always partying. Some people will be like, "Oh, I'm not an extrovert. I really like alone time." And I'm looking at them like, you know, dancing on a tabletop at a party. And I'm like, just because you need to recharge, like you're a human. You can still be an extrovert. Yeah. And and on Sunday mornings, I'll get up early just so I have the house all to myself while everyone's still sleeping. Mm. I got to have my quiet, my cup of coffee, I play a couple of games of Madden. And <laughs> I just need to not be interrupted. And if, if I extend myself too much during the week, I'll have to take the large part of another week kind of away from everybody. Yeah, kind of you'll, have to, you'll have to crash. Like yeah. I have a word for it. Like, okay, I'm going to make it till here and then I I can crash because right. it's just going to be too hard. It's going to be too much. Yeah. So my husband is more uh, extroverted than me, but it surprises less... me too. I don't know him well, but knowing yeah. you and knowing kind of the conversations we have, I would have expected the other. Yeah. He's more extroverted, but he's low in agreeableness. So, so says you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that that's a general statement. We'll talk about agreeableness next, I think. Okay. But but just not as um not as interested in other people. So he's yeah. extroverted. It doesn't bother so he leads companies, goes all day, leads meetings, talk, fires people, talks all day. None of that bothers him. Doesn't seem to drain him. He's fine. Um but but I because I'm a little bit higher in agreeableness, sometimes in a party, it looks like I'm working more because, you know, I'm just trying to, I, have, I haven't heard from this mm. person. What's your story? You know, I'm doing some of yeah. that work. Whereas he just doesn't give enough. So it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm caught by that. Cause I, I will, I will risk the exhaustion of myself at a party to really help other people feel connection and to feel like they were lifted up by the by the experience yeah. of being at the that public space. That's some agreeableness then, I think. Yeah, so maybe yeah. we'll get to that and talk about it. But it does seem as though I'll risk that my own well-being to help someone else have a good experience, which isn't me really being an extrovert. It's really me right. trying to perform a function in the group. It's the agree, yeah, the agreeableness yeah. kind of won out over the the, the introversion. But I did want to add five things here, which uh, as an introvert, it, it took me a long time to realize that both the both church and kind of society really reward extroverts more. So there are, you know, like we said, there are some happiness benefits to being an extrovert just because of the relationship aspect, but there are also benefits to being an introvert. So introverts can have higher creativity because they're not drowned, like their own inner voice isn't drowned out by everybody else. Um, so you're, you know, really great painters and deep writers. A lot of these people spend a lot of time in their own heads. Um, academic performance, health, uh, introverts tend to be a more alone with their thoughts and do things like sleeping and nourishing and eating and something like um, you getting up when it's quiet and having a cup of coffee that's very good for your for your mental health that introverts may not be putting in their life enough, especially if you're traveling and you're partying, if you're extroverted, you're going to drink more. Um, so introverts can have better health, um, business success too. Um, 
when it comes to online things and being able to work on projects without needing other people. And then there's some leadership um, traits that go with introversion, which is just the ability to hear your team contribute ideas and be able to pick the best one and not always have to be the one that has to have the idea and be the center of attention like the extrovert. Mm. So there are, I mean, so society rewards extroverts, but there, if you are introverted, you just have to find, yeah, you have to find jobs that really allow you to be an introvert. There were, I, my first job getting out of high school is I worked at a law office and I was fired and it was like a high stress law office. And as an introvert, as just like a thoughtful introvert, it was just not the place for me. Right. Um, and then I found that I really liked teaching because like you say, that's when I get the most extroverted, but it's not because I'm the life of the party in this classroom. It's because I am essentially having a conversation with the class mm -hmm. and I'm presenting, like you say. And so mm -hmm. that's when I can dip into some extroversion and some social behaviors uh, because I, I'm the teacher, they're all looking at me. So I'm gonna go and I'm gonna give my little speech or whatever. And so I became a teacher, but I wish I could tell my 18 year old self who got fired that like, hey, it's okay to be an introvert. Not everybody has to work in a law office that's just you know really crazy and really stressful. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I love the, that you're drawing out that we sometimes think that all the benefits come to the extrovert. And the reality is there are deep benefits to the introvert as well. So love that. The anything else on this one? Nope, keep going. Next one is agreeableness. Agreeableness. This personality trait includes attributes such as trust, altruism, kindness, affection, and other pro-social behaviors. People who are high in agreeableness tend to be more cooperative, while those low in this personality trait tend to be more competitive and sometimes even manipulative. And it got me thinking about like, you know, we talk at times about the Enneagram or about me being an eight there, which, you know, in a sense is kind of a justice warrior. And I'm thinking about the folks who are not agreeable, like when they need, have a point to be made, they stand their ground. And then there are other folks such as the nine on the Enneagram, who's the peacemaker and that they more want to like give everybody kudos, help everybody feel accepted and part of the group. And I was thinking about like, how might a peacemaker perceive a justice warrior? How might a justice warrior perceive a peacemaker. How might the folks who go with the flow perceive those who are shining lights on wrongs and aren't backing down? Um, how might someone whose highest value in a situation is the individual's health and well-being bump into someone who prioritizes the collective's well-being? What problems will the appeaser run into? What problems will the agitator run into? And um, I was talking to a friend this week. We had friends from uh, Vegas come up and stay with us for the weekend. And in fact, you might even know them, uh, Kyle and Jess Fouts um, from Las Vegas. They might have been at that Thomas McConkie thing that, that you were at early on. And Jess, who has just spent a ton of time studying human development, she went to uh, the same, uh, she she took a bunch of like classes to get certified in the same uh, institution that Thomas McConkie associates with. And um, I'm trying to think what the, who his mentor was. And that that's, anyway, it, it doesn't Shin, matter. Uh, Shinzen Young. Mm -mm. Mm. It's, a, it's a female. 
And it's part of that like stages, like Ken Wilber yeah. stages kind of yeah, uh, institution. But uh, she made mention, she's like, let's, let's talk about bullying for a moment, right? Agreeableness plays out in bullying. And here's how. If somebody's being bullied, they don't want that. It's an outward trauma being imposed on them. And they will end up changing their behavior. They'll change the path they walk to school. They will change when they go to get their stuff out of their locker and when they show up at class so as to avoid the bully. The bully, if you encounter him every day, he is giving you physical and also emotional by, by far, but physical trauma. You can avoid the bully, but you really just, it's still the trauma's there. You just made it much more internal because now you have the fear, like you changed your path and you have to worry about whether today's the day you bump into him again. And, and so this idea of um, agreeableness plays out in lots of ways in our life and how we try to appease our inner self, how we try to appease the people around us. There are pros and cons to dealing with the uh, injustice or the difference of opinion in that moment. If I decide to get into an argument with a coworker where there's this moment in, in at work where I just know I'm in the right and something bad has happened and we need to be accountable. I'm not going to be agreeable here. I'm going to, I'm going to hold, I'm going to shine a light on this versus the people who go like, mm, like I would rather just kind of ignore it. And I'd rather just like, you know, it's going to happen from time to time, but I don't really want to address it. I, I'd much rather have nobody have this big outburst and there are pros and cons to both of those. This is one of them that I really see as fairly balanced. And I don't see one side being significantly more positive than the other. And I think regardless of which side we take, there are going to be losses. And no matter which side we take, there's going to be wins. And it really is a matter of how much confrontation or... um how much direct, maybe that's a better way to say it, how much direct confrontation we're wanting to deal with in our life. Yeah, this, I had, I had kind of the same intuition where this is one where um, you're just gonna, it's like pick your poison, you know, you're, you're gonna have cons to whatever side you're on that you need to adjust for. But so if you're more agreeable, um, yeah, like you, more in cooperation, love, conformity, compassion. Oh, and by the way, if you are on the political left, this will show up as compassion. If you're on the political right, it will show up as like hospitality and civility and politeness mm. because it'll play differently based on your political views, which I thought was super interesting. But yeah, there, there's really cons to both sides because of this is where you and I, you know, can bring in our Brene Brown discussions where, you know, you have two things going on. You have your relationship with yourself and you kind of have in your relationship with everyone else. So you have your authenticity and then you have your compromise that you have to do if you're going to be a human in human society and have relationships with people that are different than you. And so it's just pick your poison. Like if you're more agreeable, 
you're more likely to shift and change and make sure that everybody else is comfortable. But you'll have to be careful because then you might be breaking some boundaries with yourself and your self-authenticity, especially if you're a woman, especially if you've been raised in religion. You'll have to kind of undo some of this good girl, nice girl kind of conditioning in order to work on your relationship with yourself that you've contorted in order to be agreeable. And then the opposite, you know, if you're not very agreeable because you really have your own back, then you're going to have to work on compromising in your relationships because you can bulldoze people with your authenticity. And that's maybe not the right way to go either. So I, I had kind of the same intuition that, you know, it's really just pick your poison on that one. And um, and as far as compatibility, it is best if you and your partner score closely in trait agreeableness, because a disagreeable partner will view a super highly agreeable partner as too soft and naive and, a um, a doormat. And then if you have an agreeable partner with a really disagreeable partner, you'll see them as kind of cold and harsh and untrusting. And so as long as they're not on opposite ends of the spectrum, you can benefit from being a little bit different. So having one more disagreeable than, and then the other. So for example, if I need someone to make an angry phone call, like Chad is my guy, like he in the relationship, I need you to yell at the table company. Like, and you're going to be better at this because you are more disagreeable than me. And I need you to make that phone call. And there are times where he helps me not be taken advantage of, where I would be taken advantage of. And then I also help him when he's, you know, battling with a business partner to kind of soften. Like, hey, let's let's come at this with a little bit more, a little bit more compassion for the other point of view, blah, blah, blah. So as long as you're not on opposite ends of the spectrum, you can benefit from being a little bit dissimilar as far as your um, compatibility for agreeableness. And I would even add, again, I don't know this, but just from the conversation we're having and what, what comes up for me is that I think you almost would want to have a little difference here. And here's yeah. what I mean. If you're both so agreeable that you really do kind of go through life going like, yep, yeah, we feel the same way about everything. Uh, I'm going to make complete room for you and you're going to make complete room for me. My I don't even think be... those two would be attracted to each other. That's what I'm going to say. There'd be no passion at all. Yeah, you I think need, so. You need fracture in relationship so that it it has the threat of falling apart, but both people say, no, I'm going to stick with this. And that's what builds trust, loyalty, and passion. Mm. And if you had people that were so alike, like you said, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be interesting. Isn't it so interesting that like when me and my husband met, I was attracted to him and, and attraction is like this subconscious thing, right? You don't often know why you're attracted to someone. Um, or why you choose one person over another. And so it's not like me and my husband sat down and said, okay, this is my big five personality test. It seems like you're a little bit more disagreeable. That could be a good balance for me or whatever. But my subconscious did know that. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know that. I wasn't making that conscious decision. I just knew, hey, this guy is much more confident than me, a little bit more disagreeable, but I like that because he's able to put up boundaries that I don't or whatever kind of the opposites that I was needing. And so I was attracted to it, even though, 
you know, consciously, I'm not thinking about any of this. It's just so, my subconscious and the strings of evolution were pulling that story. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, anything else on this one? No, and I'm afraid to go to the next one because I am high in eroticism. I'm. I think I'm. As the older I get, the more I think I'm higher in this than I thought. Um, the last one in Ocean is the N. Neuroticism. Neuroticism is a personality trait characterized by sadness, moodiness, and emotional instability. Individuals who are high in neuroticism tend to experience mood swings anxiety, irritability, and sadness. Those low on this personality trait tend to be more stable and emotionally resilient. And I put here, what does it look like when one is prone to anxiety and doesn't hold it well? How does anxiety work itself out in an unhealthy person? And I thought of like myself, especially my younger self, reprimanding, berating, condemning, withdrawal, chasing, panic attacks, um, those happened because I was feeling a ton of anxiety inside. I didn't have control of my world and I would do whatever it took to manipulate the people and environment around me to get my outside world back into order for me. Other people tend to withdraw, they go quiet. Um, so these, the ways in which we resolve our neuroticism is a whole gamut of reactions and mechanisms and behaviors but note that whatever your mechanisms are for dealing with your anxiety, the feeling inside, regardless of how you handle it, the feeling inside is this thing that a lot of us are dealing with. Um, and, and I was putting like, what can we do about uh, our anxiety? And I think secular Buddhism and lots of other, I think, Eastern trains of thought, as well as folks today like Eckhart Tolle and uh, Michael Singer, um, I think to a lesser extent, Brene Brown, but I think she's also pointing us to some of the same kind of thing. I think those are the places where the answer lies, which is you really have to learn to just be okay that it's there. And, and then it passes through pretty quick. Yeah. And this is one where, um, you know, you, the other ones you can have pros and cons. Like if you're an introvert, this does not mean that, you know, your life is ruined. It's just, you're going to, you're going to have to adjust for it in your life, right? There's pros and cons to each one that we've talked about, but there's really not, not an, not an upside to neuroticism. I mean, you're just a person who experiences that spiral thought to the most dark place and your brain just goes there. And so for me, again, when I think about what attracted me to my husband subconsciously is that I have some neurotic tendencies and so does my father and some members of my family, um, you know, anxiety breakdowns and, and depression and other things. Uh, mood disorders will get into this too. And for for my husband, he's probably the most like state emotionally, mentally stable person I've ever met. So so no depression, no anxiety, just a rock, just like a stable rock. And I think subconsciously it was like it's like I didn't know that I was neurotic and that he wasn't. I was just like 
attracted to this guy, right? But subcon my subconscious knew, I think he's got it together and I think this would be a safe person for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's and the so, yin to your yang in the yeah. places where it matters and yeah. he's enough like you in the places where it matters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so again, like your subconscious is really drawing you to that person, which I feel like is really interesting. And so for me, yeah, working on anxiety, the, all the things that we've talked about with secular Buddhism and meditation and things that we've talked about on this podcast, I, I it's definitely lower than it used to be. Um, and the thing that I am able to do with it, because I'm like, what can I do with my tendency to go to dark philosophical places is oh, I can become a coach to help those who go to dark philosophical places. And so yeah. that's that's kind of like the, I don't know, what I've, the beautiful thing that I've been able to draw out of my neuroticism is that because I have this trait and because I have gone to really dark places and spiraled about philosophical concepts, that if you're in that nihilistic place, I actually have tools that can help you and I deeply understand you. Whereas a different therapist who's never experienced religious deconstruction to nihilism is just not as helpful. You don't understand what that feels like. You don't understand to feel like you're you're dying and all these things. So um, that's that's been the good thing that I've been able to do out of to, to draw out of it. And then I continue to work on, you know, emotional stability. And I had this, um, you know, moments where the mushrooms told me where I was thinking about our marriage and, um, I had this, I had this vision. It doesn't make sense when you put these things in, word late, yeah, in no, words yeah. later, but I had this vision of like a, a flower and I was the flower. And then my husband was like the stem that was attached to the ground. And it was like, it was like this realization that I was able to go into really dark, de mentally destabilizing places, really deep philosophy, really deep um, ideas that I'm thinking about, some of which are quite dark. But the reason I was able to do that was because Chad was a rock. So he was an anchor. So I never had to stop what I was researching because the bills weren't paid or he's having an existential crisis. He, he doesn't do that. Right. He's just, he's right. just, he's just right. And he's so grounded so you can be tethered and still yes, explore. Yeah. Yes. And so um, it was like this deep realization when I was wanting some more, you know, there were times in my marriage where I'm like, why can't you understand like this thing that I'm wrestling with, but it was actually better that he be an anchor so that I could go where I wanted to go. And that was actually better for me than if mm. someone had gone down the spiral with me, which would not have been healthy for me. So the mushrooms mm. told me that. So if that helps anyone, but, but yeah, this, yeah, this is one where um, you don't want, if you're a neurotic, you definitely don't want to be with someone else who's also neurotic because there'll be no one to stop that spiral. It, it also earlier, real early in the conversation, maybe with the first one, if not the second one, you had mentioned that you can change your personality traits to be in balance differently in these five areas. It also should be said specifically with this one, that trauma and horrific life events can deeply impact how you show up in this arena of neuroticism. And so I'll give one example from my life. When I was about uh, 31, 32 years old, somewhere around there, uh, my wife and I both had motorcycles and her parents both, or her parents, her dad had a motorcycle 
And so the three of us went out riding on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I actually had a daughter go with us as well. She rode with my wife and then uh, my mother-in-law rode with my father-in-law and I had my bike on my own. I was taking the lead. We were off on some country roads riding around and suddenly the two bikes behind me like slowed way down. And so I was in my mirror trying to see, and, and up until this point, I was not neurotic about driving at all. Um, I was traveling down the road, saw that they were slowing down. I looked in my mirror way too long, but trying to figure out what the heck's going on with them. They didn't have anything major. It was some little issue. Somebody's shoe came untied or something, and they just had to stop to correct that. But while I was watching, the road turned into a curve. And when I looked back up, it was too late. So I was, I slowly was off the road just a little bit in gravel. I was maintaining the curve I was on, but I was also slowly starting to kind of drift off. And uh, there were two road signs. I had, by the way, on a motorcycle, I'm actually turning the wrong way. You actually turn opposite to go. It's the weirdest thing. I, the first time you do that and you're like, wow, that works. Weird. Yeah, no, no way. But, but there are signs ahead. And if I don't get myself back on the road, there are street signs ahead that I'm probably got about a 50, 50 chance of hitting. So at that point, I just lean in and I turn the bike and the bike goes out from under me. I'm probably going 55 mile an hour. Bike goes out from under me. I roll down the road. I had, uh, my head was sliced open, tons of road rash on my arm. I tore my ACL on my left knee, which is still not repaired because it's the third time I've torn that ACL. Actually not that ACL because I have a cadaver's ACL that was in there, right? And, uh, and then I had a broken ankle um, and some other minor stuff. Um, I didn't feel any pain. I, people right away stopped to come check on me. Like a, your adrenaline was already, I'm, I'm in the middle of the road. The yeah. I'm in the middle crashed. of the road and I don't, I feel like no big deal. I'm just gonna get up and walk out of you're, here. You're like high on adrenaline at that point. But the people who showed up on the scene were like, mm -mm, you don't even try it. Cause my, again, my, my knees effed up, my ankles broken. And it seemed very obvious to whoever showed up on the scene that I wasn't going to get up and walk away. So an ambulance got called and I rode in the ambulance. By the way, the police officer follows me to the hospital and writes me a ticket for not wearing my helmet as if I hadn't paid enough of a price, right? But you're not bitter. <laughs> no, no, not you're at all. You're not resentful. No, not at all. <laughs> and uh, from that moment forward, I am neurotic. I have to be the driver. I mean, I can, I if I need to, I'll sit in the back and someone else is driving. But when me and my wife go out and do our errands every day, I'm the driver. She rarely drives. I am, if she does drive, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, wow, slow, slow down. Whoa, whoa. You know, I didn't used to do that at all. And she loves that. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure she, that's why she's like, I'm not driving. Like <laughs> you're driving, Yeah. but I'm the worst driver of the two, mm. but I have to drive. Cause my being, again, it doesn't make sense. Cause I was the one driving the motorcycle, but my being in control is way better than my being a passenger and something going South and me not having control. Mm. So there's these moments in time where really horrible things can happen to us and it can create neuroticism that wasn't there to begin with. And hence, when people have neuroticism, whatever degree they have, it almost assuredly goes back to something from early childhood or a horrific event during their life. And maybe when we understand it that way, maybe we can have a lot more compassion for it. Yeah. So it's more likely, I think the, this one was the lowest one that was hereditary. It was like in the 40%. So less, less than 50%. So it's more likely that you inherited it through trauma in your life or yeah. 
or just hard times or whatever. But I think, I think for me, like my, my childhood was very untraumatic. And so I think at least based on my father and grandfather and their mental issues, I can, I think that mine is, and, and looking at my family, I think mine is definitely hereditary, but I still, even if 40% of my neuroticism is, is hereditary, I still have a pretty big window of things that I can affect with behavioral and life changes and even diet um, changes. I can, if I'm really, you know, on top of my mental health, certain, certain foods will improve my, uh, it, my thoughts, whether they're positive thoughts or negative thoughts. And so you can get into all of that. And so by doing all of those, like we talked about two times ago with, with studs, if you've, if you've got the exercise and the diet and the sunshine and the friends and the meditation and, you know, if you've got all these things in place, it can really, you know, ramp down your, your neuroticism and your tendency to go into withdrawal and panic attacks and um, that kind of thing. The other thing that was interesting is, so this one is, you know, definitely related to lower happiness and poor physical health more complaining, more anxiety, depression, personality disorders, more criminality, also more dissatisfaction with your job. And so this is one where you really want to try to limit. And there was one comment that said that they've thought about changing the, the title neuroticism because people will take the test. And because, you know, we have this term neurotic, though if they score higher in neuroticism no one wants to hear their no one wants to hear that they're neurotic and so maybe we should change that to like you'd rather be disagreeable you'd rather be closed you have some cloudy thoughts Mm. (laughs) you know you have some dark times sometimes (laughs) i don't know how you would like dress that up but you know uh, i think it's just okay to be honest that hey my brain has a tendency towards these negative thought spirals and that there's a lot that you can do on the behavior end to affect that I also would note, and I'm only saying this intuitively, I don't know this, I didn't read this anywhere, I didn't see this in any of the research. My hunch is that the neuroticism, like one one being higher in neuroticism or high in neuroticism probably has the most, this one probably has the most effect on how you show up in the other four. Mm. Meaning that if I'm if I'm having a ton of anxiety and sadness, I'm going to struggle to be open. I'm going to struggle to be agreeable. I'm going to struggle to be, what was the other one? Um, You'll probably be more introverted too. If you're in a place where you're, you're just want to self isolate. Right. Yep. So I think this one more than any of the other four affects Mm. the other four. Yeah. And especially your happiness, Jordan Peterson, which I don't quote on this, on this podcast very often, but one of our listeners brought him up because it's one that he uses and we don't talk about, Jordan Peterson's politics on here, because I think that would make most of our audience very upset. But when he's talking about personality, which is his actual field, um, I have seen him say things like, you know, the, if we want to do a, the best prediction on happiness is extroversion minus neuroticism. So how, so if you are really, yeah. So if, if you're high in, um, introversion and then high in neuroticism, um, there's going to be nothing left as far as your happiness number. If you have some in extroversion and low neuroticism, you'll be most associated with reporting, you know, levels of happiness in your life. And so those two, the extroversion, because it kind of gets you out of the house doing things that will 
make you happy. The neuroticism is just what's going on in your brain, but especially those two are your best predictors on, is this person happy? Yeah. And I wanted to show just a couple of graphics. And just before mm -hmm. I do that, I want to just note to folks, folks, uh, it would be deeply beneficial to Britt Hartley and myself in order to keep the podcast going. If you guys would consider donating, we are a 501c3. We're a nonprofit. We uh, fund our ability to keep these kinds of conversations going based on donations that come in. Would you please consider going to almostawakened.org? At the very top of the website, click the donate button. Uh, out of the nonprofit, that specific click to that donation uh, URL takes you right to where you donate directly to the Almost Awakened podcast. If you would donate five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, if somebody has the ability to do more, you know, we've got a few donors who donate 50 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month. Folks, it would mean a lot to us if you would become part of our team and be supportive of our work. This is, as you pointed out, Britt, this is this middle space that's really hard to get a following. It's really easy if you're if you're pro this or con that, but we walk this fine line of trying to honor both sides, trying to be um, respectful of, of uh, both sides so that we can acknowledge where the benefits are all across the board. And we really do need those folks who watch this show, who, who enjoy it, who are passionate about the work we're doing, if you'd support the program, join the team, click uh, almostawaken.org, click the donate button and send us a few bucks a month. It would mean the world to us. Um, I wanted to just say that these traits, so for instance, these are the five up on the screen. They It lists kind of just the general things that we've gone into, nothing special here. Um, same thing here. This talks about example behavior for low scores, example behavior for high scores. Again, we've gone through all that today. But then there are some of these graphics, and you can find these online. Um, there are some of these graphics that start to help you see where in that spectrum each person sort of falls. And here is one of them. This one was a little more simple, but it breaks these out into kind of if you're on the far side of this, on the low side of this. But some of these are really detailed, Britt. Check this one out. Mm. And so each profile, so for instance, in the top left there, it's the paranoid profile. Mm. And they are really low on A, and they're sort of in the middle on uh, the rest of them. So they're very so disagreeable, low. but kind of neutral everywhere else. Yeah, and, a little bit of neuroticism, but yeah. really disagreeable. Interesting. Yeah. And so you've got uh, paranoid, schizoid, schizotypal, uh, antisocial, borderline. So narcissists, narcissists. Mm -hmm have some extroversion and then super antisocial. Yeah. And so depending on where you're at in this test, again, I don't want to sit and have everybody be paranoid about yeah. what they are, but this, these five traits have really, the research has been done to a great extent of trying to pinpoint very specific types of personalities and where they tend to fall in these categories. Um, and so there has been a lot of work done to help people understand how these five traits affect, affect OC, us. The OCD one's really interesting me, to me too. So Where do you see on, that one at? Bottom left. So, oh, that's, I see that. so that's low in openness, high in conscientiousness. So it's like your brain loves the detail oriented thing, but you're low on openness. So you're not taking in the idea that maybe knocking on the door three times actually isn't helping, you know, yeah. you be safe today or whatever, whatever it is in your brain. And so it's like your brain is just really high on these little things that you have to do, but really low on why you're doing it. 
like openness to the ideas of why you're doing what you're doing, which is super yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So now that makes me want to take the test. This. Yeah, and I think I will sometime over the next week, and maybe even you know my wife and I are on this cruise uh, coming up. Maybe I'll kind of sit with uh, this test for a morning or something while drinking a coffee and on the on the ship and you know enjoy the ocean water while uh, trying to figure out which one of these I am. Mm, yeah, super interesting. So I have one last one for us. Let me bring it up in my notes here. So, like you said, the research has. Uh, really been done on this big five stuff so it, you know they whittled it down got to the big five and now the research is like you know yeah what kinds of drivers are you know so it's nobody's kind of refuting the big five we're just adding more research to it learning more about um the and then learning about the combinations like you're talking about but there is one um study done and a conversation that's happening on the big five that i thought was interesting so there's a proposed sixth uh, trait that they didn't think was really um, included on the list of the five. And it's honest humility, because what was happening is you can be agreeable without being honest. So you can be agreeable because you're manipulating or you can be agreeable because of religious conditioning. Um, and so the one that is proposed, if they ever go to a sixth trait that they feel is not really represented in, in personality and behavior, is um, honest humility, which is your internal, how much better do you think you are than everyone else? So if you're super low, you may think, wow, everybody else is so smart and talented and I suck. And then you'll have the opposite of that of like, I am just better than everyone else. And I- effect. Yes. Uh-huh. And so that seems to be a, so that's a proposed uh, sixth trait because we were starting to see some, uh, some data in the agreeableness part where, you know, someone like, oh, who's, who's the serial killer? Anyway, serial killers can appear and test as very agreeable. They can play the agreeable game, but they are not doing it because they genuinely think you are just as good as me and just as worthy as me. They are doing it to, mani to manipulate. So where does that show up? And so I thought it was interesting that that was the piece that they're trying to see, does this fit or do we need to add it to the big five? And it would be honest humility, your, your just natural sense of how much better or worse you are than everyone else. Mm. I, I would also because you said it there and I was thinking about it when we were talking about agreeable, I, I often think we live in this world where we say like, Oh, agreeable is a positive trait. People who are agreeable are doing the right thing. People who are disagreeable there. I wish they would just work with the rest of us. I wish they would just uh, compromise. The reality is that I would assume most people who function in the space of agreeability do so for personal benefit to them. Mm -hmm. They don't like the contention they get benefit by being part of the group. I think there are real reasons why people are agreeable beyond just altruistic sorts of motives. And so I think it doesn't really benefit us to split these up into kind of good and bad other than perhaps the neuroticism. I think yeah. all the rest of these, there's some pros and cons to both sides. They did say that this was higher in religious people. Agreeableness was higher in religious people, which we can say is is really taught, right? But I do think it's probably they did. They also said in the research it was naturally higher in females, 
which may be true even in the yeah. most free society. Like it may be, you know, even in Nordic countries or most free societies, you will still maybe have more female nurses and more male engineers. Like that may still be true even in a completely free society. So even if we take be, sexism and patriarchy out of it. Yeah, even if we take it out of it, it may just be biologically. And also it, it's tough because females, as far as we know, because we can't remove females entirely from you know, from the world. But as far as we know, it seems like females, even in the most free situations are higher in agreeableness, but also higher in neuroticism, which kind of sucks. Yeah. And so the reasons for that evolutionarily is um, the female social aspect and, you know, the child rearing and um, especially raising children together, that takes a lot of agreeableness to, to be able to do. And then as far as neuroticism, if you are vulnerable because you have a newborn baby, you're going to be more sensitive to stressful situations as a need to protect that baby, which means you are genetically, evolutionarily more prone to neuroticism, which is kind of like, which kind of mm. sucks. Yeah. So that may be true. I mean, we may have like true real gender differences that are not associated with um you know, some of this, like for agreeableness for women, some of this is like society and religion are going to want women to be more agreeable than, than men. If you're an extroverted female, I can't even think of like really, really extroverted females who are leaders in the church that we come from. You know, like they're, they're, yeah. they talk like this. They're very sweet. The closest you might quiet, get you know? would be like Sherry Dew, who is uh, a single female at the head of Deseret Book, right? And which is kind, it's part of the church, but it's an outside entity. And the, I think she has the ability to sort of lead that and be perceived as leading without being directly connected to the church itself. Right. Kind of like from this outside wing, mm -hmm. like, oh, this is, yeah. So, but yeah, in the actual organization, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, men are really, uh, praised doctrinally for leadership extroversion, and then women are kind of praised for more introverted, soft, quiet, uh, stay at home yeah. with the kids and kind holding of the patriarchy. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, but even taking that out, it may also be that women rate higher in agreeableness and higher in, in neuroticism for purely evolutionary reasons, which it's kind of, it's always frustrating that, you know, when we're talking about evolution, because it happens so slow, you know, we're really these, it's so true that we really are these paleolithic brains in, in this modern world. And there's just a lot of mismatch, you know, between the reality of my life and what, you know, evolution thinks is going on here. It's like a couple thousand years behind. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're evolutionarily programmed to overestimate fears, mm -hmm. right? So if a bear, if we think we see a bear coming out of the woods, it's better to have assumed it was a bear and it turned out not to be than assume it's yeah. not and turns out to be. A and bear. even, and that like heightened. So when you have a kid, your brain will go on like neuroticism overdrive. And so yeah. like, not only do you have hormone postpartum stuff going on, but you also have like your brain is like, if there's anything off, if there's anything not optimal, it's really bothered by it, um, which is just just hard. <laughs> evolution. Yeah, any just, click comes through the baby monitor. Yeah, ev evolution just never really cared about happiness. It just no, really no. wants the, it just wants the babies. It doesn't just care. Just perpetuate the species. Yeah, nothing else it. matters. That's it. 
So and we're it, trying to work with it. You know, can we can we have children and be happy too, please? <laughs> and then off just a little bit. I, I know we got to get going here. So off just a little bit on a tangent. I was as I was going over these five and think I just I really had it kind of set in my mind that any two human beings and, and the more people you add, the more complicated it gets. So now if we have two groups of five that are in a disagreement at any time, there's disagreement that these groups of people who come to that moment really are coming to the moment, honestly, and they really do like their values are different. Their life experience is different. And again, here's the tangent. It got me thinking about some of these really hard problems when one partner wants children and maybe many of them, and the other partner wants no kids. When when one partner sees their identity as monogamous and the other one sees themselves as non-monogamous. When one partner wants to be frugal and save for the a future moment, and one partner wants to enjoy the finer things of life right now. When one partner has a low sex drive and the other partner has a high sex drive. Like there are these moments that we disagree with each other and we paint each other into camps. And it happens so much around these five personality traits when really some, both sides are protecting something and both sides are standing up for something and both sides are seeking a certain benefit that I think we'd all do better in any disagreement. Again, there are unhealthy people who are just manipulating. That's true. And you certainly have to be on the watch for that. But I would say that you generally, when you know somebody at least a little bit, you start to get a feel if they're a good person or not. They're trying to do the right things. If there's disagreement in your life, and you're not quite able to get through it. It just seems like both camps are just staying where they're at. You, I think there's got to be some ability to stand back um, and to recognize that there isn't a right and wrong here, that almost assuredly both camps really do believe the thing that is important to them because their values are different. And we got to find some way, and it's not always easy, you got to find some way to let both humans or both camps of humans just be yeah and, and again sometimes it's a lose-lose and nobody wins one of the things that really helped my marriage was like this idea of a venn diagram like these are things that he's into or he thinks or he leans towards and and this is me and then there is a shared space but there are some things that don't come into that shared space so like when i go the group meeting that we're going to have tonight we're going to talk about death like from a, a doctor who uh, the, my co-chair who um, deals a lot with death and like my husband, not into it, like not, not his thing. And so like, but I have a place where I, I can go do that. And then there are things that are, you know, in his Venn diagram that are not my thing. And then we have the shared space. These are shared values and shared activities and shared things with our kids. And, and I think it really sets us up for failure when we think that marriage is going to be this overlapping circle, right? This is my person for everything. And they're just like me. How I wanted to ask how, how long into your marriage until you really understood that not only is your wife's brain totally different than yours, but like you really understood what was going on in her brain. This is the kind of person she is. This is how her mind works. This is like, how long into your marriage do you feel like, you got a good sense of that. So the first thing I would say is I don't even know if I'm there yet. Like I think it's <laughs> like, still five years, 10 years away. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say that sometime five to seven years ago, I, I broke out of the 
the framework that we're just two, you know, human beings are just human beings, you know, and we were kind of just passing by each other. We were sharing a life together. We were in love. Mm -hmm. Our marriage was good. There weren't any major hiccups, but we didn't have a clue who each other were. Mm -hmm. And it feels like over the last five to seven and really just the last five, five to seven, where you really recognize they are a completely different life form than you. Mm -hmm. And that it's going to take some really hard work to make space for both humans to be their best version of themselves and to feel safe. Yeah. Like I just can't even imagine like when I was first married and my husband would fix something in the bathroom and that was his, I love you, but like I'm a words person. And so he wasn't saying, I completely adore you. Here's a poem that I wrote for you. So I'm like, man, I don't know if this guy even loves me. I mean, and the sink doesn't leak, but how it was do I just, know? Yeah, it was just years of that. Like, well, I guess he doesn't really love me because like he's not writing me poetry. And like, that's how I feel love. I just want to like write yeah. you poems about how great you are. And it was just years of like, wow, like just being... Yeah, just being hurt and suffering for unnecessarily, right? Because he was fixing the bathroom because he loved me. And I just, I, I honestly had no clue. Just years and years of just like, well, I, I just, I'm not sure about this marriage thing. <laughs> anyway, it's it's tough. And yeah, it's, it's really humbling to really see, really try to understand your own brain. And part of that is understanding that everybody else's brain is a little different little bit different too and so yeah that person next to you has a completely different way that they experience being in the world and can kind of at least bring down the temperature of some of these conversations like you're talking about yeah and, and uh, there are skills as again these traits can be changed there are skills that help us to be better at being in connection with humans while honoring that other person's authentic self and still holding whatever boundaries and ground you need to be your best self. And, but, but also there, once you let go of the idea that there's a bearded man in the sky who created right and wrong, and there's rules and the rules are divinely created. Then the next thought, if you allow yourself to think it is that this is all chaos and it's all myth. And hence we're just these species of life. You're just these life forms that have this energy and we are all bumping into each other. Um, and it, how could we not have misunderstanding? How could we not have moments of disagreement? How could we not, not see eye to eye here and there? It's almost a miracle that we get along with certain people at all. Yeah. I think my hope, if I were to end this on a hopeful note, it would be that, you know, in the past thousands of years ago, you know, you have tribes, they meet up with each other. There's, um, there's violence and a lot of misunderstanding and maybe even different languages and you don't travel that far. And so you're really able to stay in your tribe and the tribe is able to maintain itself. And now we're in this place where, you know, instead of just bumping into people once in a while or just your tribe, we're bumping into everyone every day all the time. And so I think the hope that we can have with that, if we can, if we can break through some of this tribal thinking that we are, you know, evolutionarily prone to is that maybe as we continue to bump up with each other, we can learn about ourselves and that we can come to, because I learn more about myself when I deeply, more deeply understand other people. That's why I went into history is just, I just want to understand myself. 
and this is a story that can help me do that. And so maybe by continually bumping into each other at such a faster rate, I mean, we're seeing more people and hearing more stories in a day on TikTok than you would hear in an entire lifetime before. And so maybe that could help us open up who we are and what we are and how to solve problems and um, be more open and all these things. Maybe, maybe bumping into each other more can do that if we can not kill each other in the process. Yeah. Which seems to be on a razor's edge right now. It's not. Yes. Yes, but if we can break through this, maybe there's there's hope just because yeah. of the speed at which we're bumping into each other and having yeah. to see, oh, people are different than me and I need to make space for their rights to exist and all those things. Beautiful. Anything else from you, Britt Hartley? Nope, that was that was such a good yeah, that was I learned a lot. I learned a lot in general. I learned about me. I learned more about you. So I'm just over the moon that I got to learn some things today. Yeah, so it was a, that was a, great. A great conversation. And I really appreciate uh, the chance to be part of it. Thank you so much. All right. See ya. Take it easy. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.